for scripture reading this morning, I want to encourage you to open your Bible to John chapter 13. And let's read together about the example of Jesus. John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I read that passage in particular because I have been preaching through the high calling and the qualifications for elders and want to remind you or perhaps introduce you, if you've never heard of this passage before, of the example of Jesus, that those who serve the church in leadership are called to love those they serve. They are not better or greater. Instead, they are to make themselves humble servants for the blessing and betterment of the entire church. And we do this following the example of Jesus. Now, Jesus is the only one who does it perfectly. Nobody else can claim to even come close. But in humility, we strive to follow his example. And so I want to invite you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy where Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, teaches us Jesus' desire for his church. And so I spent a week preaching about the high calling of being an elder, a week preaching about the first half of the list of qualifications for an elder, and I want to end this little series on elders by preaching the second half of this list, and talking about what we may do as a church in the coming months. I want to read the entire passage and then begin to go through it slowly. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. 
The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and Titus shows us that overseers and elders are the same thing, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, I want to do two things. I want to point out, number one, the Bible helps us apply this list by giving us some examples of people who did serve in this capacity. So as we read this list, it is a high calling and the qualifications are high. And in fact, I believe that everyone should feel a sense of inadequacy when they read it. If you look at that list and say, I got it. We should not appoint you as an elder. Elders are those who know, perhaps more deeply than anyone else, how much we need the grace of Jesus. How much we need the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from our own sins. And so, it's with humility that we all look at this list and say, is anyone qualified? And so I want to mention just two people that the Bible clearly shows are qualified in the Bible to help us for just a moment. The first is the Apostle Peter. Now, if you've spent time growing up in the church, hearing his little stories in Sunday school, or you've heard the New Testament preached, Peter has a reputation. He is the guy that is most likely to speak first and think later. He is also the guy who is most likely to say, Jesus, I'm ready to die for you and draw a sword to defend the Savior. And he is the most likely for Jesus to have to say, put your sword away. Whoever lives by the sword dies by the sword. Peter has a kind of zeal that is incredible. And yet in his zeal, sometimes he acts first and thinks second. And I can imagine Jesus did not consult other people when he called his apostles. We know that he prayed and sought the Father before he appointed them. Scripture is very clear about how Jesus spent time alone in prayer. But I can imagine if Jesus had called the church meeting and said, guys, I think I might call Peter to serve as one of my apostles. And the church had access to this list. They would have thought, I don't know. Uh, Just think for a second about not argumentative. Have you met Peter? Have you met this guy that openly speaks and then constantly has to be corrected by the Lord? And if we recognize that not only 
did Jesus call Peter to be an apostle. But Peter is used by God to grow and build the church exponentially from the earliest days after Jesus ascended to heaven. He's not just a minor player. He is a major player. And you can't just write off his sins as early immaturity because if you read the New Testament, he makes mistakes as a pastor. One of the passages that I think is so critical to read in the New Testament, I should say one of the books, is the short little book of Galatians, where Paul describes an episode where he has to confront Peter because Peter is sinfully in hypocrisy. And Paul openly confronts this man who publicly preached about the unity of Jews and Gentiles and then quit spending time with Gentiles because he was afraid of his Jewish brothers. It's a dirty kind of hypocrisy. And so I mention that to say, this list is not something we should compromise on, but it's also not something that we should use to disqualify everyone from ministry. When God calls people to serve, He calls sinners. And so I don't want to minimize or excuse away anyone who is disqualified, but I also want to be careful how we apply this list. And I want to point to Peter and say, if Jesus called Peter, then we ought to remember these qualifications are not a claim to sinless perfection. Peter, with a hot-headed temper, did sin at times with his temper. But I don't believe you could call him quarrelsome. And part of the reason I say that is because of the affection and love that he has for the church when he writes books like First and Second Peter. You see his heart for the church. And yes, he is passionate about the truth, and maybe sometimes he speaks out of turn. But his love for the people is so great that he also is willing to admit when he's wrong, confess his sin, and seek restoration and forgiveness, and then keep serving the Lord. Hang on just a moment, friend. So my point is, I don't want to say, we know Peter's got an anger problem, we're going to appoint him anyway. That's not right, and that's not what Jesus did. The point is, when Peter sinned, He confessed it and forsook it, and he grew in Christ so that the immature sins of his youth were not characteristic of his maturity. And losing his temper a few times did not make him a quarrelsome person because he sought forgiveness and restoration when he sinned. Quarrelsome people do not apologize. They do not admit being wrong. They leave division in their wake. And I mention that so specifically because I think it's key as we think about the people that we know in our fellowship. You might think, oh my goodness, I remember a time when so-and-so did such-and-such and I just don't think they can serve. And maybe you're right, but maybe there has been healing and forgiveness and restoration And maybe their sin is now an example of how to repent and forsake sin, and they are capable of leading and following Christ. Okay, friend, uh, you've got your hand up. 
Yes. So you're, yes. And that's my second person. Yes, absolutely. So Alan has just mentioned, or Andrew, sorry. Andrew has just mentioned a person who was killing other Christians and Jesus forgave him. You're talking about the apostle Paul, right? So Peter is my one example because he's called by Jesus to serve as an apostle. And in the book of First Peter, he refers to himself as an elder. When he says in chapter 5, I write to the fellow elders among you as an elder. So he is serving in this role, even though we would say maybe he has an even higher calling as an apostle. Paul, in the same way, serves as an apostle, called and commissioned by Jesus. And we have already seen within this book, he considers himself to be the chief of sinners. And you can read very similarly in the, in the book of Acts. He has a disagreement with Barnabas that's so sharp that they can't work together. And just, I think it's worth the 30 seconds or so to review. When Paul becomes a Christian, the church knows of his reputation as a persecutor. They know that he has been going around arresting believers in Jesus and trying to have them imprisoned and even killed. And so when Paul becomes a believer, the church doesn't trust him. Who would? They're worried that maybe he's trying to be like a covert op or or something. They, They don't feel like they can trust him. And Barnabas comes along and vouches for him. And Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement, and he lives up to his name. He serves alongside with Paul. They go all over the ancient world together. And Paul's ministry is made possible in part because Barnabas, in love and kindness, said, man, I believe this man's conversion is genuine. I'm willing to give him a shot. Even if I get hurt, even if I get burned, I'm willing to stick up for him. And the church embraces and accepts him because of the testimony of Barnabas. And so they work and they serve together and they work with a young man named Mark. Well, halfway through one of their missionary journeys, we don't know the details, but all we know is that that Mark left. Paul says he deserted us. We don't know if he was homesick. We don't know if he was discouraged. We, We don't know what happened, but Mark leaves. Okay, so it's disappointing when you're serving alongside someone and they kind of bail on you. But when they get ready to go on their next journey together, Paul and Barnabas initially plan on going together. And Barnabas says, hey, I think we need to give Mark another shot. And Paul says, absolutely not. And it's kind of ironic because Barnabas is just being the same consistent, encouraging guy that he's always been. He extended this kind of grace to the Apostle Paul. And so he's just extending the exact same grace to Mark. And then Paul says, no, I'm not having it. Forget about it. That guy bailed on us. We can't count on him. He's unreliable. And it's like, Paul, like, have you read your own story? Like, do you recognize that he's extending the same grace? That... And Paul sharply disagrees with Barnabas. And scripture says they disagreed so strongly that they had to go in separate ways. Now, I mentioned that to say, Paul is writing this letter. And that sharp disagreement is so serious, you can imagine looking through this list and taking it to the Apostle Paul and saying, wait a minute, I don't know if you're qualified to serve. You got so angry, you can't even work with the guy that vouched for you that let you serve within the church? And the division that took place there probably took at least a few years to heal. And yet, Paul is a man who loves the church and loves the Lord Jesus. And in fact, the book of Acts implies 
that because he and Barnabas went separate ways, that the church actually grew and was blessed because instead of focusing all their energies together, they were able to reach the world in a wider and a broader way, and God even used their division. Now, that's not to justify Paul's lack of grace towards Mark, but it is to suggest this, that just because you've had a bad experience with someone doesn't mean that they're disqualified from ministry. If Mark were in the church meeting and you were considering Paul for eldership, Mark would have been, no, absolutely not. And Mark would have been wrong. So as we look at this list of high qualifications, and men, if you feel like God is stirring in your heart to serve, I want to encourage you to recognize the difference between a failure in the past and a persistent sin in the present. And I want to encourage you to recognize the difference between someone who confesses and forsakes sin and someone who justifies it and excuses it. In the first case, where someone who admits, I'm a sinner and I need the grace of Jesus, I would say, you have an opportunity and a possibility to serve. In the second case, I would say, we cannot compromise this list. You must not serve. The church will be harmed if you do. And I want to say that very clearly because I don't want to preach this in a way that negates the grace of God. I don't want to preach this in a way that no one is able to serve and I tender my resignation today. I want to preach this in a way that strengthens and helps the church by helping us realize the high calling of being an elder and the qualifications that we must not compromise on, but all of them, all of them flow from the grace of the Lord Jesus that forgives guilty sinners and makes them more and more like Jesus Christ. So with that as a background and an introduction, I want to jump halfway through the list and think very clearly about some Maybe odd things. That's true. It took a work of God for Paul to be changed, and that's still true for many people. So, friend, let's look together at 1 Timothy chapter 3. We've already seen the first list of qualifications, and we finished up through the end of verse three, or excuse me, the end of verse two, where an elder must be able to teach. Now picking up in verse three, Paul continues and says, he must not be a drunkard. Now it'd be tempting to move straight past that and say, I don't think anybody here would be disqualified because of that. Uh, Scripture doesn't forbid drinking. It forbids being drunk. And so very likely, I, I don't know that anyone who would consider church eldership would be disqualified because of this kind of sin, unless you are really a high-functioning drunk and you have hidden it so well that we have no idea. I, I don't know. But I want to think for just a moment about why this is included and what it might mean for us. So what are the problems with drunkenness that disqualify someone from public leadership in the church? And there are a couple. One of them is it can be a very public sin. And so continuing to sin very publicly would tarnish the reputation of the church and of Jesus Christ. But I want to also suggest there's another quality to this 
that maybe will hit closer to home to our hearts. And that is drunkenness shows a sinful dependency on a substance in the place of God. I'm going to say that again. Drunkenness shows a sinful dependence on a substance in the place of God. There are two primary reasons people drink. Either seeking joy and good times in something other than God, or seeking escape and numbing a real pain instead of finding healing in God. And alcohol is one way that people try to self-medicate with problems like that. Now, if you are doing that, you're turning to something that cannot heal you. You're turning to something that will not bring forgiveness and restoration and healing. And it shows that you don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ in a real way. Because you go back to alcohol as if it's your savior again and again and again. Now I said this might hit closer to home. Let me mention something that's a totally acceptable Christian substance to maybe sometimes abuse. This won't hit everyone, but it will hit a few. It hits me a little bit. How many of you have ever said, I need a cup of coffee? Okay. Caffeine is a drug that works differently. Often it helps you focus. And often it is a good and a rich blessing that I take daily. Not knocking it. But here's what it can become. You can justify anger and impatience, which are sins, when you say that I haven't had this thing that I need. Now, thankfully and mercifully, Paul does not condemn coffee drinkers and say they're disqualified from eldership. Amen. (laughs) But he does say that they cannot be drunks. And friends, I would say if you need any substance in your life in a way that you are so dependent on it that you can't be godly without it, you have a sin problem. I, I don't care what it is. At the end of the day, God is our source of salvation and our strength and our support. And scripture describes both wine and if they discovered it at the time, I'm sure they would describe coffee as good blessings of God. I used to, as a sort of troublemaking guy, like to say my favorite verse in all the Bible was Psalm 104 verse 15, which commends the use of wine as a substance that makes the heart of man glad. He's not just talking about, you know, take it a little medicinally. He's saying it makes you joyful and it's not a bad thing. And I would say there's a healthy and a godly way to drink coffee and wine and all kinds of good gifts of God. But if you are dependent on them for your joy in the place of God, you are in sin. And that's true no matter what the substance you depend on is. And so if you have an addiction problem, you cannot serve as an elder. Not only are they not to be drunkards, but continuing on in verse uh, 3, Scripture says, not violent, but gentle. Now this manifests itself in a couple of different areas in a couple of different ways. Uh, Paul has told Timothy in chapter 1, you need to keep certain people from teaching in your church. 
You need to be ready to contradict those who are teaching what is contrary to sound doctrine. And in a way, he has encouraged Timothy to be confrontational in a godly and in a healthy way. And yet, if you look for people that love being confrontational, you have leaders that can hurt. People that are itching for the fight are often heartless and cold and cruel. So Paul says, not only are you to not be violent, but you are to be gentle. And I think of Jesus again and again, because he's famous. Scripture says that a bent reed he will not break. So think of a broken person. He's not going to lay it on him for being guilty of sin. He'll be honest about their sin, but he gives hope. So often he says throughout the Gospels, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. You are forgiven. And so Jesus Christ is our perfect model of being both strong as steel, but absolutely tender and compassionate at the same time. He certainly knew how to rebuke when it was necessary, but he also knew how to extend grace and love and kindness Women felt very safe with Jesus Christ. Children loved coming up to Jesus Christ. And he showed a kind of gentleness and a kindness that in many ways is contrary to a a stereotypical macho man. I can't picture John Wayne with little kids, right? It doesn't happen very often. And yet at the same time, excuse me, friend, at the same time, Jesus Christ had the kind of strength and steel that enabled him to go to the cross and to say, not my will, but yours. And he was able to correct and rebuke and confront, but always with complete compassion and gentleness. Uh, Andrew, can we talk a little bit after service? Um, and and I'll, I'll listen to you a little bit more then, okay? All right? Okay, thanks, buddy. Um, so, Not only not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And I believe this goes with not violent, but gentle. Scripture is very clear that we have to be able to stand for what's true and to correct those who are in error. But then the question becomes, what must we take a strong stand on? And what can we agree to disagree on? What are the major things that you die for? What are the things? That you shrug your shoulders and say, "Ah, I don't know if that even matters. Um, I I got a text message Friday. I I was changing the oil in my van. And and a pastor friend of mine sent me a text message. And he said, hey, do you believe there's a rapture? Some some of you are like, what's the rapture? I don't even know. Have you ever seen those bumper stickers that say, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned? Or there, there are old movies that Christians made in the 70s and 80s that that describe a moment where Jesus calls his people home. And so, boom, there are no Christians left in the world. Well, that's known as the rapture. And if you read through Revelation and a couple places of the New Testament, uh, many people think that before Jesus returns, there's going to be a time of tribulation and judgment on the world. And that before that starts, God is going to rescue his people. And so all these Christians will disappear. So in the movies, you see like little piles of clothes just poof. Like, I, I don't know why Jesus didn't take the clothes too, but apparently he didn't. I, I don't know. So my pastor friend sends me this text message. Do you believe in a rapture? Now, I'm not going to tell you what I said. 
he, he and I go back and forth about different ways that Christians will react depending on your beliefs. Like there's not a right answer. You can double down and say yes, no. There are people that differ on when the rapture will take place. Uh, so the Bible does describe being caught up together with the Lord in the air. That's clearly biblical. But the question is, when does that happen? Some people think it takes place at the beginning. Some people take, think it takes place in the middle. Some people think it takes place at the end. You know what, friends? We can agree to disagree over this. If you love arguing about the rapture, and that's really what gets you going, you're not qualified for leadership. There are more essential things in the scriptures. You must be able to say what is essential and what is not. Now, I was able to give him a pretty clear answer. And we had a great text exchange while the oil was draining out of my van. And and it's good to know what you believe. But it's also good to recognize what is of first importance and what is of second, third, and fourth importance. And being able to worship and love people that have a differing view from you is absolutely essential for Christian unity. So if you have a guy that loves to argue over all kinds of different things, but he never seems to celebrate the good news of Jesus, he is creating more division than he is unity around the gospel. And it's essential that we keep what is important first and foremost among us. So, Scripture says not only cannot be a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. Then he says he must not be a lover of money. Not a lover of money. Again, Jesus is our chief example in so many of these things. And he helps us understand what it means to seek the kingdom of God first. And then all these things will be added unto you. Those who serve in leadership have a high calling. And it's not saying that money is evil or bad, but that they cannot be slaves to it. If there's a high degree of debt, you have obligations to work, to pay your debt. You do not have freedom to devote your time to other things. So being bad with money, whether it means you have too much or you don't have enough, means that you may not be able to serve. And in fact, you may have a heart issue where you love the things of this earth more than Jesus Christ. And if that's true, you ought not lead people in worship. Because Jesus is to be the first priority in your life. Jesus said, then all these things will be added unto you. Get Jesus right first, and then we worry about everything else. Those who serve in leadership need to be the first who are willing to open their wallets to help others. And if your heart is instead looking to fill your wallet, you have a little bit of a conflict of interest. So not a lover of money. Instead, generous. And I would point to what Jesus said about our Father in Heaven. The Father in Heaven is the example of Christian generosity. And Jesus says, this is, this is an interpretation, but he says he causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. In other words, God gives good gifts even to people that don't worship him and don't acknowledge his goodness. And Jesus says we as his children are to be the same way. I don't just help people who agree with me, who like me. I help those who are alienated from Christ, who are enemies of the Father by their own choice. And I give them good gifts the way my Father has given me good gifts. 
So Christian generosity is the opposite of being a lover of money, and it must be evident. If we are to call men to serve in this capacity, they must be known as being generous. Now, obviously, if you have a a public desire to show off your generosity, that's a problem. I I remember hearing pastors talk about how they would leave $100 tips, and I was like, oh, wow, I'm so generous. That's great. Well, why did you have to tell anybody that? that? That's not, you know... Jesus says, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So as we think, is so-and-so generous? Maybe we're going to have to be sneaky to figure it out. It shouldn't be something that's super obvious. But if you know them, generosity should be a character that comes to mind. It should be evident, not stingy, but instead generous, loving to share. Not only that, Paul continues and says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now, we've talked a little bit about finances. Uh, I did want to say, the scripture's clear, those who are poor are not disqualified from serving in the church. In fact, there's good evidence that in the early church, uh, people like Onesimus, who was a slave that was eventually freed, then became a leader in the church. So you don't have to be rich or wealthy. Instead, you have to be a faithful Christian And you can be poor and be a a leader in the church. That's absolutely not a problem. So as he talks about managing his household, that doesn't mean that you have to have a giant house and manage your funds well. You don't have to be a CEO. You you don't have to even have a family. But what you do have to do is you have to manage what God has given you very well. And Paul particularly applies this to those who have children. Uh, He says, with all dignity... He must keep his children submissive. And I've got three things that I want to say around this point. Number one, he is not saying that you can't have fun. Okay, so he's saying like with all dignity, but he's applying that in particular to how you keep your children submissive. So I'll say more about that in a second. But dads, I believe you have a particular responsibility to lead your home in real joy. To be the person that is able to help people laugh when they're sad and discouraged. To be the person that believes in your kids and in your spouse, even when belief is hard and difficult. Your job is to encourage them even after failure. And it doesn't start when they're sad and when they're hard. It starts when you're playing with them and loving them. So as one example personally, And maybe this is partly because I'm more musical, but I love to sing to our kids the goofiest little songs. And I'm going to let you in on two secrets, okay? One of them is that for little Rosalie, for her whole life, I've stolen a tune and rewritten the words to bring a little bit of joy in her life. Do not tell her that there's another song that has different words, okay? But I sing, sweet Rosalie. Bum, bum, bum. Mom and daddy love you so. Oh, oh, oh. And she loves it. Okay? Now, you can all laugh at me. I don't care if you laugh at me. Maybe I've destroyed my Christian dignity here. I don't think so. I do this for my boys, too. In fact, all of them, I sing... You're one of my favorite sons. You're one of the only ones. And if I have another son... Well, I started this with Isaac, right? So then it would be two favorite sons. But at this point, it's starting to add up. 
I sing to my children to bring them joy. My hope is that they will remember our home as a place of happiness and song. That we can rewrite lyrics to goofy songs, and one day, Rosie's going to hear that song and be like, Wait a minute! I thought my dad wrote that song! My words are better, honey. Being dignified does not mean that you're always serious. Instead, it means that you discipline with dignity. Look at what he says. He says, you must keep your children submissive. Now, we hate the word submissive. It's not a bad word. It means that they follow your lead. And I want to say there are two ways that you can lose dignity in discipline. The first is you can become angry with your kids and and even become abusive. And if you are an angry, abusive parent, you are not qualified for leadership in the church. In fact, you need to seek help. But the second way, we often are a little bit more patient with, but I believe it's just as bad. The second way you can lose dignity with your kids is by begging and pleading with them while they continue to defy and disobey you. You lose your dignity either way. And Paul says, those who lead the church must manage their homes well. So what your children need is for you to not be a doormat, but also to be patient and loving and gentle with them. You need to be absolutely firm, but also willing to hug them and hold them after you've disciplined them so that they know how much you love them, so that they never confuse discipline with a lack of love. But instead, they understand that mom and dad have rules to bless our whole family so that all of us are happy, so that all of us are joyful. And when your children see your consistency and your fairness and your ability to apologize when you get it wrong, you will have dignity in your home. And if you have dignity in your home, you can be a leader in the church. Now I want to pause for just a second. There's a big question that every pastor answers at some point. It's very common for pastors as well as for other believers to have their children grow up and walk away from the faith. I know of a number of pastors that have unbelieving children. It's heartbreaking, and many of you can say, my adult children are not really walking with the Lord either. It's a common problem. The question is, does this disqualify someone from public ministry? And I believe the answer to that is no, because once your children reach adulthood, they no longer have a responsibility to submit to you in the same way. They are still called to honor you. And yet I would say, if you have demonstrated faithful godliness as a parent, your adult children walking away from the Lord do not disqualify you from public ministry. What that looks like while your children are still home is a different matter altogether. And this is a qualification that you must be able to lead well with. Now, every kid, every kid, and I want to say this loudly and publicly, every kid is a sinner. Just like every adult is a sinner. 
And I know there are difficult days for me and Lauren as our children grow up. And I would ask that you would pray for us and pray for our children. When Paul says that you need to keep your children submissive, he is not saying that your children need to be perfect or you can't serve in the church. He's not. What matters more than your children is your reaction to your children and your faithfulness in being gentle and firm while they figure out who they are before the Lord. So I want to say very clearly, pray for us. Pray for the families of our church. In this qualification, as in all the others, elders are leading by example so that the rest of the church can follow their example. I'm preaching a message on elders, but friends, this applies to the entire church. So I want to be very clear here. Your home life matters. Verse 5, Paul says, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, How can he care for God's church? Now, before we go to the next qualification, I want to emphasize in a single sentence, Paul has summed up the responsibility of an elder. An elder is to care for the church of God. An elder is to see the needs of the church and to rush to meet them and to lead others in meeting them. And so as he describes how important it is For an elder's home to be a model of faith, the church is to reflect that model so that every need of every member is met with grace and with love. Verse 6, Paul adds, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I want to pause here for a second. It is true. I don't want to minimize this or deny it at all, but I do want to point out the fact that Paul established elders in churches not long after he preached the gospel and people believed. And so in Ephesus, we know he was there about three years, and Scripture records him establishing elders. Now, to some of you, a person who has been a Christian for three years is a baby Christian, and they need to serve the Lord for another 20 or 30 before we even think about it. And I want to say that's not biblical. If someone is growing in their faith, recent is a relative term, and we should not prevent people from serving if they have demonstrated maturity and growth, and they have a competent knowledge of the scriptures, and they are serving and leading. Recent, I believe, can be as little as three years because of what Paul does in the Ephesian church. So be careful about appointing someone to leadership too soon, but also be careful about not allowing someone to lead who has been a convert for a long time and is ready to serve, but maybe they're not as old as you are, and so you have a hard time taking them seriously. Paul will say later in this book, Timothy, don't let anyone look down on your youth, which means that there are young people who are qualified to serve and should serve. He mentions with caution, the reason that you must not allow a recent convert to to serve as an elder is because he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The danger of pride is present for everyone who serves. And so I would add a prayer request here 
that you would pray for those who lead, that they would not be tempted to pride. Because even if it's a smaller temptation for someone who has known the Lord a long time, it is still a temptation. So recognize the danger that with leadership comes this temptation to pride. Finally, he says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Now, again, I I spent a lot of time talking about what it means to be above reproach last week. Um, And in that conversation, I learned that Barry Sanders was not a quarterback. I want to end in some ways where I began. Because well thought of by outsiders is very similar to being above reproach. Well thought of by outsiders does not mean you don't hear any bad things about them. Remember, people accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. People hated him and opposed him very early in his ministry. And yet, if you spent time with Christ, you knew that they were wrong. You never saw him drink to excess. You never saw him be a glutton. The more you spent time with him, the more you realized the people who said those things were lying. And so it's possible that outsiders may say things that are untrue. But what matters is that they are untrue. And this needs to be evident to those who are outside the church. Part of what that means is your pastor needs to spend some time outside the church. The people of the community, his neighbors, ought to know him. And so I want to stress, as we look to appoint the next generation of leadership here, I believe that we need to prayerfully go through these and ask the Lord to help us identify who should serve. Now, three weeks ago, I had a a pile of bookmarks. I've got a couple left. If you don't have one, um, I, I can give you... This one, I wrote on it a little bit, but I'll give it to you anyway. I believe that we need to dedicate ourselves to prayer as we think through who is going to lead our church in the coming year. And as I've preached through this passage on elders, and I'm wrapping this particular part of the book up today, the question is, what do we do next? And I have to say, honestly, I'm not 100% sure, because to some degree, it depends on how you as a church believe this book applies to us as a church. And so I announced during announcement time that on August 22nd, I would like us to have a church members meeting where we discuss this. Uh, There are a couple of things that I would like to say very practically about, I believe this model of ministry where the congregation appoints elders and the elders have authority to lead will help us tremendously. One of the challenges that we have faced as a church, I've heard so many people say it, and I agree with it, is that communication kind of stinks. We have a hard time communicating as a church. And part of the reason that is, is our committee structure is really complicated. And so we have to have our committee chairs have their committee meeting and then come to the council. And if the council has questions, they have to go back to the committee and figure out the answer to that question and then come back to the council. And if at any point we forget to tell Debbie or put it on the calendar somewhere else, no one knows what's going on. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard the phrase, no one knows what's going on. And that's partly because no one knows what's going on. This sort of complicated leadership structure hinders our ministry. And if instead, 
the church is willing to nominate and elect elders that can lead, we will not be bounced back and forth between committees and a leadership team. We can make decisions and go after them with enthusiasm and unity in a way that will help us reach the community and build up the church in a godly way. And so I want to ask you as church members to consider, should we change our leadership structure? And as your pastor, I want to say, I believe that we should. But ultimately, that's up to the congregation. So friends, be in prayer about this. I believe God's model will help us tremendously as a church. But then the question is, if we agree we need to make the change, how do we make the change? Some of it would at least involve amending the Constitution, and perhaps we need to do a careful rewrite. Those are not things that we can do quickly. So how do we function for the next year? These are all questions that I would like us to talk about as a church on the 22nd. Um, I'd like to have a second church meeting in September as well. October is distressingly close. And I do not want to rush this kind of change. But the reason I'm talking to you about it now is I believe it flows straight from this book. Understanding what elders are and understanding what deacons are and how the congregation relates to them is essential for the health and strength of our church. And so I want to ask you to pray about what we need to do as a congregation in the coming months. And I want to end like this. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I'm not a member of the church. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I I don't think I'll ever be in leadership. And maybe you won't. I I don't know. One of my favorite pastors, a guy named Mark Dever, He says he loves to ask young men that he doesn't know very well, would you ever consider serving as an elder? Just to to put it out there. So when a guy who's 20, 25 years old, he's thinking, man, what would that look like? Just to plant the seed so that the next generation is growing and moving towards the goal. So maybe you are a future elder and you have no idea. But maybe you'll never serve in ministry. And so what does this message mean for you? Well, at least two things. I believe the Bible teaches that we need to humbly submit to those who live up to this high calling. That we need to follow their examples. And so I want to say to you, do you have an example of a godly Christian that you follow? And is that example someone that you know in your local church? Because I guarantee you, it's easy to find pastor heroes that are off at some distant church to listen to their messages and read their books and say, man, I love this guy, but you don't know him. You can't watch him with his family. And so you need to have someone you follow who's in your local church. And if you don't have that, I would humbly ask you, why is that? Is it because there's no one qualified or is it because you've not taken the scripture seriously when it tells you to submit to those who have the rule over you? Are you part of a church to an extent that you can follow the example of elders and you can submit to their leadership? Or do you sit back at a distance and say, I'm going to take what I like and I'm going to leave what I don't? Because that's not biblical Christianity. I want to challenge you, if you don't have people you follow, to consider what it would mean to truly be a member of a church and to follow the leadership that God has established through the congregation. 
And if you haven't thought about joining this church, I'd love to have a conversation with you. I intend to do a membership class in September. We've got a couple people who are interested in membership. And I want to say very clearly, you heard the covenant we read at communion time. These are the things that we agree on that it means to be a member of the church, but it also means submitting to godly leadership who have these qualities, these incredible qualities that make them godly. Secondly, my first point is we need to follow this example. My second point is this. There is grace for guilty people. There is grace for guilty people. I I can tell you as a dad, there are times I've lost my temper. I'm human. And when that happens, I try as best I can to recognize it, and I always go and apologize. And there are other ways that, that I sin. There are days when I say, I need that cup of coffee, and I maybe lean more on caffeine than I do on the Holy Spirit. There are ways that that I struggle with the different qualities of this this list. And so I want to end by encouraging you that there is grace for guilty people. And one of the most important things that an elder does is again and again, he leads back to the cross and says, although we are guilty, we have a great savior whose blood can cleanse us from every sin. He is the one who is building the church He is the one foundation, and he is a good and a great builder, and the church will not fail because of him. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to praise you for your grace. We want to thank you for your mercy. But I ask that you would let us rest in the promises of your word that assure forgiveness of sins. Father, I pray that as a church, you would help us to wrestle with what this passage means for us. I pray that you would bless us with leadership that would strengthen and sustain us, that would allow us to grow, that our church could be a light in Holly for decades to come. Lord, even centuries if Jesus doesn't come back first. I ask that you would bless us with leadership that would follow the example of Jesus in humble service that we would not compromise the high calling that you've given, but instead we would humbly lead to the cross where we find mercy. God, only you can do this. By your spirit, stir in our hearts, strengthen us to be obedient. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As I prepare to dismiss you, I want to leave you with the words of Paul found at the end of 2 Corinthians. He says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace.